for coming tonight. I appreciate you uh, being here um, uh, for the preaching of God's Word and to um, hear about um, what I believe God's called my family to, uh, the ministry He's called us to in Brazil. So we're going to start out uh, with a sermon on Luke chapter 16. Uh, we're going to start reading in verse 1. We're going to go through uh, at least first, um, at least verse 9. Uh, we might actually get into verses 10, 11, and 12, um, depending on how, how time goes for us. So you can go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles there. Uh, again, that's Luke chapter 16, uh, starting at verse 1. Uh, and after our, I kind of go through this text tonight and uh, present a message to you from it, uh, we're going to take some time and uh, I'm going to uh, talk to you guys about uh, just the ministry that I think God's called uh, my family and I to in, in Brazil uh, and talk about some ways that you and uh, uh, Fisherville as a whole can uh, hopefully support us in that. So I'm excited. I think it's going to be a great evening. I uh, hope you are as well. Uh, let's start out with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, we come before your throne, Father, uh, and into this place, Father, not needing to hear a word from me, Lord, um, not needing to hear me speak, Father, but needing to be spoken to, Father, by you and by your word, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would push me out of the way, Father. Um, push me out of the way so that your word can shine brightly, Father, and that your word may impact our hearts, Father, um, that it may enlighten our minds, Father, and provide for us, Father, the hope that we need, Father, to go out into the world, Father, and live missionally for you, Father, and leverage the resources that you've given to us, Father, for the sake of the gospel, Father, and for your glory. It is in your name that I pray. Amen. So I am... A uh, big fan of mystery stories. Uh, growing up, my family had a whole shelf full of mystery books, and I've read every one of them. We had a, a whole series of uh, the Hardy Boy books. If any of y'all are my age, you remember, I'm seeing some of y'all remember the Hardy Boy books. Uh, we had a whole volume, a whole series of them. There were about 60 of them, and I read every single word of them. I just, I love that mystery element uh, of reading. Um, we had some Encyclopedia Brown books. Any y'all remember Encyclopedia Brown? Same thing. There was a mystery there. He was a little bit more of a know-it-all, but n nevertheless, there was a mystery there to be solved. And you read that book to be confronted with the mystery and to uh, and, uh, read about the resolution to it. And uh, I loved that as a kid. And I still do as an adult, right? I, love, I don't get to read mystery novels very much at all anymore. Um, I don't really watch uh, mystery movies all that much anymore, but I still do when the occasion arises. I still love hearing about a good mystery that needs to be solved. So um, the cool thing about mysteries is that a lot of times they follow a set pattern, don't they? So in a good mystery novel, the first little bit of the book, you're introduced to the characters, right? You learn about a few main characters. You know who they are, where they come from, what they're all about. Uh, the goal is to try and form a little bit of a bond with the characters, all right? Then we're presented with the mystery, right? Something happens, right? Something happens that we don't understand that needs to be explained. There, there's a problem to be solved, right? This is the, the mystery. After the mystery, we start to uh, venture into the clues portion of the book, right? 
And so the way you solve a mystery is you begin looking for different clues that the author has put into the, into the novel and that, that, that will help you solve the mystery. Um, clues can be anything, right? It can be a scrap of paper. It can be a comment that somebody says. There's all these little different clues to, to help you as the reader and even the characters in the novel to figure out and to understand what the solution to the mystery is. And then the one thing that every good mystery novel has to have is a resolution, right? You've got to solve the mystery and figure it out. You've got to figure out what's going on. Uh, all the, all the, everything that was mysterious has to eventually get resolved, right? Well, tonight, we're going to try, we are going to try and solve a little bit of a mystery, okay? At least it's a mystery, that, uh, a mystery to me when I first encountered this text. We are going to look at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 10, and we are going to try and explain the mystery of why God tells us, or why Jesus tells us, to emulate the behavior of a shrewd manager, okay? So, um, we're going to use, uh, we're gonna use that basic outline of a mystery novel as a way of kind of working through uh, our text this evening. Uh, first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at some characters. Then we're going to see the mystery unfolded for us. Then we're going to look for some clues in the text to try and help us understand what this mystery is. And finally, we're going to see a resolution. Okay? Uh, uh, my prayer is that God will bless us through this. So, Who are going to be our characters in our mystery that we're going to encounter tonight? Well, like I said, it's Luke 16. That chapter starts out with a simple word, he. So who is he? He is Jesus, right? Jesus is our first main character uh, in our mystery this evening. There's actually only going to be two characters. There's going to be Jesus and the manager. Let's focus on Jesus for a minute. So Jesus, who is Jesus? Well, we know who Jesus is, right? Now, in this particular text, he's doing something um, I think is rather interesting. He's actually doing this for a large portion of the gospel narratives. Uh, Jesus, when we come to this text, is actually on a journey, he is on a journey to Jerusalem, right? He is uh, making his way with his disciples and with the rest of the Jewish people who live outside of Jerusalem. They are making their way into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. Not for the rest of them, this was going to just seem like any other Passover that they had uh, celebrated the rest of their lives. But for Jesus, this one wasn't going to be, this was going to be a Passover like none other, right? Because you see, five days after he enters Jerusalem on that Sunday, he is going to be handed over to the authorities. And he's going to be crucified on a Roman cross. Now, the people who handed Jesus over to betray him, they thought they knew the reason that Jesus was getting crucified. Jesus was getting crucified because he had made them upset, right? He didn't fit in with the mold that they had um, projected for what it meant to be a good Jewish person in Jesus' day. He didn't fit that mold, and in fact, he challenged that, mold, challenged that mold on almost every single front, right? And so Jesus, to them, was being crucified because he was upturning the apple cart, so to speak. He, wasn't, he didn't fit the mold that they wanted, and he was actually upsetting them. But we know 2,000 years later, and actually they knew very soon after, that Jesus wasn't being led to a Roman cross because some Jewish elites didn't like who he was or what he was doing. Jesus was actually going to the cross in order to die a sacrificial death for my sins and for your sins and for the sins of the whole world, right? Jesus was going to the cross in order to die for others. He gave his, up his life 
to die for others. He gave up the glories of heaven to come down, take on human flesh, live a human life, and to die for others. And so, who is this character, Jesus? Well, first of all, he's the savior of the world. Uh, let's, look, let's think a little bit more about Jesus. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to flip back real quick. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 12. Start reading in verse 22. Uh, this is Jesus teaching his disciples. Let's, let's pay careful attention to what Jesus says here. I think it's going to come up in a few minutes. Um, this is Luke chapter 12, verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor wheat, nor have neither have storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father in heaven knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy, Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with treasures in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so this character, Jesus, the first character that we're looking at in our story, first of all, we know him as the savior of the world. We also know Jesus as a great teacher. And that passage that he's just taught his disciples is extraordinary, right? Don't be anxious about the things of this world. Don't worry that you're not going to have enough food to feed your mouth, that you're not going to have clothes to put on your back, or that you're not going to have a roof to pick over your head, because your Father in heaven knows that you need those things, and you can trust in your Father in heaven to provide for those things for you. So Jesus is a great teacher. He teaches wonderful truths and expects his followers to follow after those truths. What else do we know about Jesus? Well, even further back in Luke's uh, gospel, we encounter something known as the temptation narrative, right? Uh, Jesus goes out into the wilderness. This actually uh, happens in all three of the synoptic gospels. He goes out into the wilderness, and he is tempted in every way by Satan, right? Uh, and the Bible tells us that despite all these temptations that he endures from Satan, he doesn't fall for one of them, and he is completely without sin, right? That's a fundamental truth of Christian doctrine. Jesus is without sin. His moral integrity is impeccable. He would never tell his followers to do something wrong or expect them to live in another way that uh, was something beyond, out, out of the bounds of righteousness. One more thing about Jesus. Uh, this is important. It should be obvious from our text tonight, but another thing about Jesus is that he enjoys teaching with parables, right? If you were to look at all the times that Jesus teaches in the gospel, what you would find is that one-third of the time he teaches with a, a form that we know as parables, right? So what are parables? Well, parables are um, a way that teachers teach. They're a way that they, uh, stories that they tell to illustrate the main point that they want to teach for their audience, right? 
And so Jesus uses this uh, manner of teaching a lot. A couple things about parables. Uh, one thing, we want to be careful not to read too much into a parable, right? Um, we're going to read a parable in a few minutes uh, in Luke 16, and not every single part of that parable has some kind of hidden significance for us, right? Uh, part of this is just Jesus telling, a, telling us a story to illustrate some truth, right? Another thing about parables is that we have to give Jesus, or whoever's telling the parable, a little bit of leeway to tell the story to make it the point that he wants to make, right? And so Jesus likes to teach in parable, and we need to give him a little bit of leeway uh, to tell the parable uh, as he wants to read it. So first character is Jesus. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins. Uh, he teaches his disciples wonderful things. Do not be anxious uh, about your needs, because we can trust in God to provide for our needs. Uh, he suffered every sort of temptation uh, at the hands of the devil and was without sin, and he loves to teach in parables. Now let's consider our second character. Um, we'll start out by just calling him the manager, okay? And to introduce him, let's read uh, our passage tonight. Let's start reading in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. And he also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that his man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to them, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill, write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of the world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So we've encountered our second character in, in, our, par in our passage tonight. This is the manager. If you actually know anything about this parable, he's actually known as the shrewd manager, right? This is the parable of the shrewd manager. I think shrewd might be a little bit generous to this guy, right? This guy's actually a scumbag, isn't he? Right? I mean, this guy is dishonest, he is a scoundrel, and he is a scumbag. Let's recap uh, a little bit about what this guy's doing, okay? So first of all, he, uh, this manager hears that he's not doing a good job managing uh, his possessions, right? And so we don't really know exactly why. We don't know if he was stealing something or whether he was just uh, inept at his job. But for some reason, this guy uh, was doing a poor job of man getting, managing this man's wealth. And this man has decided, I'm not going to let him be my manager anymore. And this guy says, well, I I'm too lazy to actual work. We don't know if he was too lazy. But for whatever reason, he says, I can't dig. Uh, I'm too prideful to beg. And so what am I going to do in order to provide for myself? says, I know what, and he hatches this scheme, and his scheme is basically to uh, cheat his master out of his fortune, right? And so he goes to this master's debtor, and he says, oh, you owe 100 measures a week? Well, why don't you just make it 80, or you owe $100,000 to my master? Let's just call it 50 and call it a day, right? And so 
you can imagine that if you were on the other side of this, you might actually like this uh, manager, right? And it sounds pretty good, right? Wayne's about to build a, or he's in the middle of building a house, and he's going to have a house payment, I guess. I don't know, but can, Wayne, can you imagine if somebody were to show up to you a week after you move into your house and say, you know what, Wayne, instead of all that big mortgage that you have, let's just write 80% off of it, and we can call it an A. Yeah, we, we like this guy, right? And so from their perspective, they might think this is a good idea, but from our perspective all this time later, we know that what this man is doing is not right. He is cheating his master out of his master's fortune. Um, his master very well may become destitute because of this man's scheme, right? This man is a no good, lazy, cheating scoundrel, the scum of the earth. His actions are reprehensible, right? There's nothing about this man that we would want to emulate. Can we all agree on that? All right. I'll remember you said that. And so our two characters are Jesus. Uh, who we know is the savior of the world, and this lying, cheating, scumbag manager that we know as the, as the shrewd manager. Now let's consider the mystery. We're going to read, start out by considering verse 9, and then we're going to circle back to verse 8. So what does Jesus say in verse 9? And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you may receive they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What are we to make of this? I mean, it certainly seems like Jesus is saying, that story about that dishonest, shrewd, scumbag manager that I told you guys about just a moment ago, that guy, I want you, all of my followers, I want you to go and emulate that guy, right? I mean, this is Jesus, right? This is the guy that has previously told them, don't be anxious about your food that you're going to need to eat, your shelter uh, that you're going to need, or anything else that you're going to need, because we can trust in God to provide you. He's looking at this manager and saying, guys, that guy, emulate this manager. He's got something that, he's got something in his character that you guys need to pay attention to. And the rest of Jesus's followers, at least I am, I'm like, what? Why? I, I, I just don't understand Jesus. What is it in this guy that I need to emulate? What about uh, Luke 12, 22? What about all those things that you said in there? Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 of this chapter says, The master commended the honest, dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The mystery just gets even deeper, doesn't it? Because Jesus doesn't not only points to that dishonest manager and says, guys, pay attention to that guy. There's something in him that you need to emulate. He actually seems to lament that his followers are not as shrewd as the people of the world, right? This isn't the Jesus that we encountered in Sunday school, is it? No, this, this guy is telling us something different. He's telling us something confusing. He's presenting a, a mystery for us, I think, that we need to solve. Jesus does this from time to time in his ministry, doesn't he? Um, especially in his parables. If you ever read Jesus' parables, he's all the time doing things that just leave me baffled and just saying, Jesus, I just don't understand what you're getting at here, right? There's one parable, I don't know exactly where it is, but he actually compares God to an unrighteous judge. Can you imagine that? An unrighteous judge, somebody that would, a judge that would take a bribe in order to uh, be um, swayed to give a particular ruling. Uh, he's he's uh, dishonest, 
And Jesus said, God's like a dishonest judge, right? At least he seems to be saying that, right? Um, there's another part where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a, a man in a field who is digging and he, and he finds this treasure that is beyond anything that he can ever imagine. It is so valuable that he would never have enough money. Uh, it's more money than he's ever going to be able to make in his life, right? And so this man, he runs and he tells the owner of the, uh, of the field, hey, you got this great treasure there. Just, just wanted to let you know, right? Oh, the, the man doesn't actually do that in Jesus' parable, right? What does this man do? He goes up to this owner and says, you know that worthless field you got down there? It, it's kind of low-lying land. It's since like so swamp. You, you don't want that land. Just let, let, me do, let me do you a favor and buy that land off your hand. And he buys the land from the owner and uh, takes it off with the fortune, right? Jesus is always doing stuff like this. It's so interesting. He fills his parables with these shady characters, doesn't he? These people that you would think, why in the world is Jesus telling me a story with this guy? And I mean, this is supposed to be the savior of the world. This is not what I expected from the Son of God. But he does this, and it's awesome, I think. It's awesome because it uh, allows his parables and his stories to stick and embed themselves uh, deeply into our minds. So we've uh, introduced ourselves to the characters, Jesus and the manager. We've seen the mystery, Jesus says, Guys, emulate that shrewd manager. Uh, there's something in him that I want you to pay attention to. Now let's begin to look at the clues. Let's see if we can't unravel this mystery a little bit. So there are two clues that I want us to consider, and they're both uh, at least found in verse 9. We'll need to venture a little bit out of verse 9 in order to fully understand them, but let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails... You may receive you, uh, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So what's our first clue to unraveling this mystery? Well, our first clue is the word friends, right? Now, Jesus tells, uh, Jesus tells his followers, make friends with unrighteous wealth, right? And so I, I think it's fairly obvious what friends are, right? Uh, we all know what friends are. Friends are people that we enjoy spending time with. Uh, a lot of times they like to do the same things that we like to do. Um, you can count on friends to kind of help you out of a jam. Um, you know, since, uh, Autumn and I moved up here um, away from our families for me to attend seminary. We left our families like 500 miles behind. You know, we, when we got here, we didn't know anybody. And since we've gotten here, we've had three kids and we've made a lot of friends, and the times that we've needed friends, uh, and there have been a lot of those times, we're actually able to count on those friends to help us out, right? Um, when we just had our third son, Aiden, uh, a lot of our friends, uh, people from this church, brought us meals, and we really appreciate that. Uh, these are the kind of things friends do, right? Uh, these are the kind of things that they do. So uh, we, we all pretty much have a good understanding of what friends are. Friends are people that we... Uh, appreciate and that we like to be around. I consider you know, most, most all of uh, the members of my church family to be my friends, some closer than others, but um, these are my friends. But there's a little bit more, right? Because these aren't just friends that Jesus is talking about, are they? These are friends, but somehow these friends are actually able to receive us into eternal dwellings, Right? So there's a little bit something more to these friends, right? I mean, I, I love all of you to death, but I'm looking out among you and I'm thinking, I don't think any of you got the strings to pull in order to help me get into eternal dwellings, do you? 
Now, these are some pretty special friends here, right? So these aren't your typical friends. These are friends that are going to be able to help us enter in into eternal dwellings. So who are these friends exactly? Jesus is telling us to make friends by means of unrighteous wealth. And we know from the context that these are friends that have some kind of sway, it almost seems like, in in heaven or something. So who who exactly are these friends that Jesus is wanting us to uh, to make friends with, with with our wealth? Well... What are the possibilities? Is it the angels in heaven? I really don't think so. The Bible makes it very clear that the angels in heaven are, are all about giving God glory and serving God. They don't, angels in heaven don't serve us, do they? So that's probably not who our friends are that we're supposed to look after. So who are our friends? Are, maybe our friends are uh, other people that have gone before us and already in heaven or something like that. Maybe that's a possibility. But again, I kind of don't think so, right? Because every man that's ever lived on this earth is in the same position position that me and you are, right? They aren't able to pull the strings that we need to be pulled in order for us to have a good spot in heaven. They actually need help too, right? And so they're not in heaven able to pull strings for us. Um, These these aren't good possibilities for who our friends are in heaven. So who, who exactly is our friends that Jesus is talking about here? What's the, what's the clue that we're supposed to be searching out? Do you want to know what the, the big reveal is, who our friends are? I think the big reveal is, is that our friends are nobody, right? This is actually part of Jesus extending the parable that he has just told onto the disciples and onto us, right? He was saying that shrewd manager, uh, he, he made friends for himself by means of unrighteous wealth. And he's saying, you guys... I want you guys to make friends for yourself, okay? But for us, we're supposed to read between the lines and realize that this, this isn't friends, actually, that we're supposed to make, but it's what these friends represent. So what, are the, what does the manager's uh, friends represent? Well, his uh, friends don't represent, uh, for us, the friends don't represent anywhere. What the man's actually doing by making friends is he's actually preparing for his future, Right? He's looking at an uncertain future in which he's going to have to somehow provide for himself. And he's thinking, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Let me prepare for my future by making friends who are going to receive me into their home, right? And so when Jesus tells us to make friends, I think this is actually what he's trying to tell us to do. We're not making friends. What we are to do, uh, the behavior in this man that we're supposed to see is, I want you, uh, Jesus is telling his followers, I want you to prepare yourself for the future. Okay, so that's our first clue. Let's look at our second clue. Our first clue is the word friends. Uh, Jesus is telling us to prepare ourselves for the future. Well, what's our second clue? Our second clue is also found in verse 9. It's the words unrighteous wealth. Now, what does unrighteous wealth mean to you? I kind of know what it means to me. Un- unrighteous wealth, that, that doesn't seem like anything good, right? This seems kind of like some... Uh, Ill-gotten, ill-gotten gains, right? These are, this is something that we get through underhanded work. Well, again, we're left wondering, what in the world is Jesus actually telling us to do, right? I mean, is Jesus telling us to go knock off a 7-Eleven or something? I mean, what, what, what is Jesus, is he, does he want us to make a dr- drug drop? Or what is Jesus actually doing here? I mean, we are really seeing Jesus' like inner gangster coming out in this passage, right? I mean, what in the world is he actually telling us to do here? 
make friends for yourself with unrighteous wealth. Well, I think the same thing's actually going on with unrighteous wealth. We're not to use unrighteous wealth. This isn't any kind of money that we steal to make friends, to prepare for our future or anything like that. The unrighteous wealth comes from the parable, right? The unrighteous wealth is what the shrewd manager used, right? The shrewd manager, it's easy enough to understand why his uh, wealth was unrighteous. His wealth was unrighteous because he stole it, right? And so it's not that we are to use unrighteous wealth. He's actually telling us, use the unrighteous wealth, uh, a.k.a. what the shrewd manager used to prepare for his future. That's what you're to use to prepare for your future, okay? So what is this unrighteous wealth? Well, I think a good way to think of our unrighteous wealth, the unrighteous wealth for the shrewd manager was the resources that he had at his disposal, right? These were the, uh, he was in charge of his master's debts, and so those were his resources, and he used those to prepare himself for his future. So these were his resources that he had at his disposal. I think a good thing for us to do, if you're somebody that likes to uh, write in your Bible, um, when Jesus says, make friends for yourself, and to Uh, make friends for yourself with unrighteous wealth, uh, I think what he's actually doing is he's actually, um, he's obviously projecting that from the parable. It's almost like he's putting quotation marks behind those, right? They're not printed in my Bible, but you can imagine as Jesus is given that parable, he's actually doing the scare quotes thing, right? And so if you're somebody that likes to write in your Bible, uh, I actually think that would be a helpful thing for you to do as you read this passage in the future, Put these little scare quotes around friends and unrighteous wealth, right? You can call this your CCEV version, your Casey Croy edited version, right? I think that would be helpful for you to understand what what is actually going on in this passage. So we've we've seen two clues so far. We've seen our friends and we've seen unrighteous wealth, okay? Now let's see if we can make our way towards a resolution. If you've been paying attention, I think you'll... Uh, be able to see kind of where we're going with things here. The shrewd manager used his unrighteous wealth to make friends to prepare himself for the future. What Jesus is actually telling his followers is, I want you guys to use the resources at your disposal right now in order to prepare yourself for the future, right? Okay? Use what you have right now in order to prepare yourself for future, for the future, in order to prepare yourself for heaven. You know how I like to say, think about this? I like to think of it, uh, think of this principle like this. Leverage your life for the sake of the gospel. Okay? Leverage your life for the sake of the gospel. Leverage your life. Take the resources that you have at your disposal right now. Uh, these are things beyond, uh, uh, this could be a wide variety of things. It could be your money, your time, your talents. Uh, It could be anything, but take those things, your resources, and actually leverage them for the sake of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is uh, the proclamation, uh, the going forth of the glory of God on uh, on the face of this planet, right? And so I think what Jesus is telling us in this passage is that we are to leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel. We are to leverage the things that God has given us in order to spread his glory across the face of this earth, right? We are to leverage everything that God has, all the gifts that God has given us, not for ourselves, not to make money for ourselves, but to prepare for our future and eternity, right? We are to leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what exactly does this look like? 
I was thinking about a few uh, examples that I could share with you of different people that I've heard about who have uh, leveraged their lives for the sake of the gospel. A couple of years ago, I'm a, I'm a graduate of uh, North Greenville University. It's a small Baptist school down in North, uh, North Greenville, um, South Carolina. Uh, a couple of year, uh, years ago, I went to a luncheon uh, for the alumni, and the president of the school was there. He was a new president. Uh, and he told us this story. I think this is a wonderful example of leveraging your life for the sake of the gospel. Uh, he told us all that one day he marched into the financial aid office of his school. Justin, you might, I wonder if you've ever done this. He went, he went into this uh, office and he asked, guys, I want you to tell me who has given the most number of times to North Greenville University. And they kind of looked at him funny. He, he didn't say, who's given the most money to North Greenville time, uh, University? He said, who's given the most number of times to North Greenville University, the, the school where I graduated from? And so they did a little research for him, and uh, they came up with a name. I was straining my brain to remember the name for you guys, and I, I just couldn't do it. So but anyway, they came up with a name, and uh, the president of our university uh, he told us that this particular individual had given, over the last 60 years, he'd given over 200 times to North Greenville University. And so the president of our school decided, I've got to go meet this guy. And so he got the man's address and he went to meet him. He said, I'll never forget what he found when he drove up to this man's home. Uh, he came and uh, drove up to this man's home, this man who had uh, all told, he, he never gave more than about $20, $25 at a time to the school. Uh, but like I said, he made these donations over 200 times. The man had actually given almost $6,000 over the course of his life to the, to the university. Uh, when the uh, president of my school drove up to this man's home, he said he was amazed. This man lived in a two-bedroom home. And when he walked into the door, he said, when he, when he went in, it was one of the most sparsely furnished homes that he had ever been in in his entire life. This particular man was a graduate of the university back before it was a university or even a college, back when it was teaching on the high school level. Uh, it was nearly 60 years ago. And the man had graduated from the, from the school then. He had went and got a job uh, just outside of Greenville, South Carolina at a tire manufacturing plant. Okay? Uh, this man didn't hardly make anything in his entire life. Uh, he was able to buy his home, and whenever he got $15, $20, uh, he would send it to North Greenville University. And like I said, by the end of his life, he had uh, donated almost $6,000 to the school. This man, who was, uh, barely had anything, he lived in a two-bedroom, almost shack, in the middle of the way between Greenville and Greer, South Carolina, uh, had donated that much money to the school. And when the president asked him, why did you donate all this money to the school? You know what the man told him? The man told him, it's because I believe in the gospel ministry of, the, of your school and what your school is doing, all right? I think that's a wonderful example of what it means to leverage your life for the sake of the gospel, right? This man didn't have much money, but what he did, he used to leverage for the sake of the gospel, right? Let's think about another example. I was trying to think of another one and thought of somebody maybe a little bit closer to home. Uh, I thought of Willard Joyner, okay? Willard Joyner. Willard Joyner is my father-in-law. He's Autumn's dad. Uh, Willard Joyner worked his entire career at uh, the phone company in 
Winterville, North Carolina, or it's actually Greenville, North Carolina. It's kind of an odd twist of fate, isn't it? I graduated from North Greenville University. My wife's from Greenville. Anyway, um, Willard Joyner uh, worked for the phone company his entire uh, career uh, in Greenville, North Carolina. He um, never had much money, okay? He had to provide for his family. Uh, when he was done providing for his family, he actually helped support his family's farm, okay? He, he never had much. Um, he, he provided well for my, for my wife's family. Um, but you know what he did have a lot of? He had a lot of time. You know what else he had a lot of? He had a lot of skills. And so for most of my wife's uh, growing up period, um, her family once a month would, on Sunday mornings, um, would wake up early. And they would go and they would visit the nursing homes in their community, and they would sing to the nursing home, uh, people in the nursing homes, and Willard Joyner would pass out tracts of the previous week's sermon that he had listened to at Winterville around the nursing home. It was a ministry that he did, right? And you know what? My wife's family woke up early on those Sunday mornings, but those were actually the Sunday mornings that Willard Joyner got to sleep in, because if he wasn't going to visit the nursing home, Willard Joyner was actually back there in the, in the sound booth right? Uh, Willard Joyner was a, was a servant of the church, and he served other people. Um, I've known Willard Joyner for almost 12 years now, and I could already, uh, if I were to tell you every way that I've seen him serve other people, we would be here until next Sunday night. I think he's a great example of what it means to leverage your life for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't mean that you have money to spare, but it means that you're able to use what God has given you for the sake of the gospel. What is another example? I thought of this one too. There are two guys named John Cortines and Gregory Balmer. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they actually have written a book called God and Money. John Cortines and Gregory Balmer were uh, MBA students at Harvard University School of Business, right? So these guys were elites. They were on the fast track to making lots and lots and lots of money in life, okay? Um, More than likely, uh, if they had just avoided doing anything stupid, they were going to be millionaires uh, a couple times over by the time their careers were done. And that was just if they were kind of meeting the averages, right? These were were very brilliant, successful guys. Well, the cool thing about John Cortines and Gregory Balmer is that they were from Christian homes, one, And two, they started paying attention to the aspirations and the dreams of the other classmates that they had at Harvard uh, Business School. And it suddenly dawned on them one time, their dreams are so empty, okay? I mean, they're dreaming of yachts and penthouses and all this kind of stuff. And what what is all that actually going to get them at the end of their lives? And so what these two guys did, they did something incredible. They started reading their Bibles. Specifically, they started reading... Uh, the parables of Jesus and Jesus' life, and they said, what does Jesus actually tell us to do with our money? And their conclusion, what they decided was, they'd been told the wrong question to ask their entire lives growing up, right? Their entire lives growing up, they had always heard the question, how much do I have to give to the church? Well, after studying what Jesus actually instructs us in the gospel, reading parables, I think this is a great conclusion to draw from our parable tonight. They decided that the real question wasn't, the question wasn't, how much do I have to give, but how much do I dare keep, hold on to, and don't give away? 
these guys were uh, um, actually present, uh, wrote up their uh, findings of their study in this book called God and Money. If you actually go buy the book, uh, I think there's a note on the back cover. These two guys have already donated all the proceeds that they're going to get from this book to Christian charities. And they've committed to taking their skills that they learned from the Harvard School of Business who they're, with their MVAs um, to, in order to make a... They've committed their lives to making an extraordinary amount of money in order to give most of it away. So this is leveraging their lives for the sake of the gospel. This is the point that Jesus wants us to come away with in the, in the parable of the uh, shrewd, dishonest manager. Leverage your life for the sake of the gospel. What does this look like for you? I can't really tell you. It's going to look a little bit different uh, for every one of you. I look out among this crowd and I see some guys that have large families. Part of leveraging your life for the gospel is planning yourself into your family, Right? and being the mom and the dad that God has called you to be. I'm looking at some of you, no offense, but the days of your family life has passed, and now you are in the grandparent stage, right? You're retired, right? You've got wonderful opportunities to leverage your life for the sake of the gospel. I'm looking at great examples of people who are doing that, uh, even in just in my church family. I see young people here. I think it's fantastic that you guys have come here. Do you realize what would happen if you take this principle that I'm laying before you tonight and apply it to your entire life? You've got more life ahead of you in order to leverage for the sake of the gospel than any of the rest of us have. I want to invite you to take that principle and latch onto it tonight. Leverage your lives for the sake of the gospel. You're going to go to college and you're going to have classmates who are going to have completely different dreams in mind, okay? You're going to have friends that are going to have completely different dreams in mind, and you're going to hear about uh, what their presentation and what their idea of the good life is like. And I'm going to tell you, it's empty. You know what the good life is? It is leveraging your life for the sake of the gospel. And I know that's because that's what Jesus tells us in this parable. I want to take a few minutes tonight and um, tell you a little bit about how I'm hoping to leverage my life for the sake of the gospel. Um, a couple months ago, Autumn and I, um, let me start a little bit, let me start my story a little bit earlier in that. Uh, about a year ago, it was last August, I began feeling God call me to um, start to inquire about what ministry would look like uh, for my family overseas teaching in a seminary. I became connected with an organization called Training Leaders International, okay? Uh, uh, it's kind of a long title, their acronym is just T-I-L, Okay? So what is T, uh, I said that wrong, didn't I? I'm getting a little dyslexic up here, it's the lights, I swear. It's T-L-I, okay, Training Leaders International. So what is Training Leaders International? Well, Training Leaders International is an organization that helps people uh, with PhDs go and teach over, in seminaries overseas where otherwise, uh, if these teachers didn't go teach in these seminaries, otherwise uh, this training wouldn't be made available to these overseas pastors. Okay, And so a couple months ago, I actually became what's known as a global partner with TLI, which means that my family is actually going to be living full-time uh, overseas so that I can teach in a full-time capacity at a seminary. Um, uh, they're actually going to send us to a place called Natal, Brazil. Okay, uh, Speaking 
uh, Portuguese. Uh, I'm going to be working at a school called, um, it's basically the Christian School of Pastors. Is it out there? Yeah, I forgot what the name of the school is. Escola Crista de Pastores. Um, my Portuguese isn't so good. Yeah, I'm sure I butchered that. Um, but that's actually where we're heading. Um, the... Uh, uh, the School of Christian Pastors is actually the vision of a man named Sandro Eugenio. He's the pastor of the Christian Baptist Church uh, down in Natal, Brazil. Uh, pastor Sandro is a wonderful individual. Uh, he is somebody that is committed to expository preaching. And what I think is so cool there, in Brazil and in the rest of South America, uh, the prosperity of gospel has just taken off, right? People, uh, if the pe- preachers down there tell them, uh, if you give money to my church, God's going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. The people buy into it and they give their money and they latch on to whatever pitiful, pathetic, good swing, upturn their life takes and thinks, ah, oh, God's blessing my life. Let me give a little bit more uh, money down there. And so it's a place where um, the structure, the framework of Christianity is still there, right? But the gospel is actually absent. And the gospel is actually absent because there's not enough people doing what Pastor Sandro is doing. Pastor Sandro, for the last 30 years, has been doing expository preaching in his church there in Natal. He's had a wonderful, fruitful ministry. And now he's finally at a point where he's uh, uh, told the guys at TLI, I want to start a school there to actually train ministers in expository preaching because I think the gospel is ready to take off in a place like Brazil but the problem is we have every, all of our schools here are only interested in teaching prosperity gospel. What we need in Brazil is people willing to teach uh, Bible exposition, willing to teach the Bible, willing to teach expository preaching in order to go out into, uh, into the churches in their community and actually preach God's word and actually proclaim the gospel to their churches. And so... Uh, where are we going? We're going to Natal, Brazil, to work in the Christian School of Pastors. Um, it's the vision of Sandro. Um, we're, um, next question is, uh, actually, how can you help us? Uh, how can you help uh, support our ministry? Well, there's two ways. Uh, number one, uh, we need a lot of prayer support. Um, a couple of people have asked me if Brazil is a safe place. Um, families ask me that, and I always kind of tell them, yeah, yeah, it's safe. Um, the truth is, is Brazil is a place of very high crime. It's a very dangerous place to take your family. Um, there are the things that you can do to mitigate the danger, um, but nevertheless, it's there. Um, perhaps more importantly than that, it's a place that's far away from family. Um, uh, Autumn's lived two years as a missionary in Peru, um, away from her family. The longest I've ever been away from my family is for about a year when I studied in Ireland. Um, our kids have never known another home other than here in Louisville. And so there's going to be a lot of changes that my family is going to have to endure to, to, get, uh, to be over there and for me to serve in this capacity. Uh, we're going to need a lot of prayer. The school's going to need a lot of prayer. Uh, we're, we're actually telling these pastors that are going to come to our school, turn your back to the Welches and, uh, that you'll get from being a prosperity gospel preacher and be a gospel preacher. The school needs your prayer. I mean, who's gonna buy that? I think a lot of people will, with the help of prayers like your, uh, like it will come from you guys. And so, one of the ways that you can support us from prayer, now what does that actually look like for you? Well, uh, right now, on a monthly basis, Autumn and I are sending out a support newsletter. 
Uh, basically, we're sharing some about TLI, we're sharing some about our school in Brazil, and we're sharing some about our personal lives. And in every one of these support newsletters, um, there's going to be this little sidebar where we're actually going to list out some prayer requests that you're going to be, that we're asking people to pray for. And by uh, signing up to be prayer partners with us, what you're actually signing up to do is you're automatically going to be put on our email list and you're going to get a newsletter. Right now it's going to happen every month, uh, delivered to your mailbox. What you're signing up to do when you're signing up to be a prayer supporter of us in our ministry is actually get that newsletter, cherish it, print it out, hug it. You don't have to do that, I guess. Uh, but no, uh, in all seriousness, um, read, read the newsletter, uh, read the prayer prompts, and just com uh, committing to pray, uh, praying through those prayer prompts a couple times uh, over the month. Um, it would mean more to my wife and I than you could possibly imagine to know um, that a large number of people are actually praying for us uh, back home uh, in these ways. So that's how you can support us through prayer. Another way that you can support us is by uh, financial contributions. Okay, um, we have a monthly budget that we've ha that we're going to have to raise in order to uh, start and for us and for, in order for a TLI to send us to Natal, we have to raise that. We also have to raise our one-time expenditures. These are things like our different trainings that we'll need in order to prepare ourselves to go down there, plane tickets uh, to get down there, and actually um, uh, setting up our home when we get down there, and actually language school. I have to do about a year's worth of language school. And so we have one-time expenses and we have monthly support expenses. Um, we would appreciate it so much, uh, any kind of contribution that we got towards either one of those. Um, what we're, uh, we've decided to do uh, when we go and speak at different churches is to just put out this simple goal uh, to anybody who's willing to uh, accept it. Pray about becoming a $10 a month prayer partner with us. Now, why $10? For some of you, that's going to be a big burden financially, even just $10. And it's not because that's so much money, it's because you're already giving to so many other different places, right? And we don't want you to uh, stop giving to every other mission just so you can come give to us, right? Fisherville Baptist, it, it's kind of funny. Every year that I've, since I first started coming here, uh, Brian has put forth the Lottie Moon Missions goal uh, sometime in November. And the first year I got here, he gave that goal, and I was just like, this man, is, he misspoke or he's lost his mind, one or the other. I thought, there's no way a church this size is going to give that much money, and lo and behold, we blew past that goal, right? And it happened every single year since I've been here. Uh, Fisherville Baptist Church is very committed to giving money to missions, and I don't want that to stop. I don't want you to stop giving to things like the Lottie Moon Missions Offering. I don't want you to stop giving money to people like Scott and Linnell uh, Bailey, who are missionaries with Wycliffe, just because the Croys have decided to go to Brazil. Um, I want you uh, to be able to, uh, I, I would love for you to be able to contribute to us, but we don't want to be the whole sum of your, of your missions giving. Um, another reason $10 is an advantageous gift for us is because it actually enables us to build a broad base of supporters, right? Because the thing is, if we get a couple people uh, to give us large amounts of money, if for whatever reason one of those people gets taken away, all of a sudden we're down that much support. Whereas if we lose uh, a couple people just giving us small amounts of money, we, we still have a large base that's still get, uh, supporting our ministry. So that's the challenge uh, if you're interested 
uh, in supporting us financially, we would love to consider uh, for you to pray uh, and see if you're willing to be $10 a month supporters uh, for us. So $10 over a, uh, a year's time is $120. It's a big commitment. Uh, over three years, I'm not very good at math. I, I got my PhD in Bible. I left math way back uh, a long time ago, but I think that's $360. I think I looked it up the other day over a um, five-year period. It ends up being something like $600. I think I, I shouldn't go down this road. I'm not very good at it. Anyway, uh, my point is by giving just a very small amount of money, um, you'd be amazed uh, at how that multiplies uh, in the years to come. Uh, and you'd be doing it to support uh, a ministry that ultimately I think is uh, gospel-centered. That's one thing that I wanted to make sure that I mentioned. I'm going down there to, to teach in a school, but um, I'm very convinced that this is a gospel-centered ministry. If it wasn't, I wouldn't be going. Um, I believe that going and teaching uh, these pastors uh, to take God's word and preach it and proclaim it into their uh, communities and in their churches is ultimately going to lead to the spread of the gospel in the nations. Uh, and hopefully from spread of the gospel from their communities to around the world, okay? So uh, this is gospel-centered ministry. That's why I uh, have no qualms about presenting it to you and uh, asking for your uh, consideration to support us, number one, through prayer and also through uh, financial support. So um, uh, if you're interested in either one of those, uh, we actually have a, a newsletter sign-up sheet uh, that Autumn's kind of uh, put together, and it's actually on the back table there. Uh, you can sign up for that and uh, commit to supporting us in prayer. And if you're uh, interested in supporting us uh, financially, um, get with either Autumn and I, and we can kind of take you through the steps of doing that. Um, there are a lot of different ways that you can, um, that they take in donations for us. And so uh, uh, any kind of support that you'd be willing to give us would be so appreciated. Um, and a wonderful way to leverage your life for the sake of the gospel, I believe. So let's, uh, let's close out in prayer. Lord, um, I pray, Father, that uh, I've taught this text faithfully tonight, Lord. Lord, uh, sometimes you have some stuff in your word that I just don't understand, Father. Um, it takes hard word, hard work to understand what's going on uh, in the midst of the Bible sometimes, Father. Um, but it's worth it. It's worth it because when we do that hard work, Father, and we explore the hardest sections of your word to understand, sometimes, Father, the principles, principles that we gather from that, Father, we're able to apply deeper into our lives, Father. Lord, um, I pray, Father, that you would begin to show each and every person in this room how to leverage their life for the sake of the gospel, Father, how they can prepare themselves for eternity, Father, with the resources that you have given them today, Father. Lord, I am thank you, Father, to be a part of a church where I see this going on all the time, Father. Lord, um, my only request, Father, is, is that uh, you would allow each of us to look within ourselves, Father, and ask ourselves the places and the uh, situations where we're not doing that, Father, and hold us faithful to doing so, Lord. Lord, um, let, us be your, uh, let us be the lips for your gospel as we go out into the world this week, Father. Lord, may we take the gospel on our lips, Father, and in our hearts, Lord, and uh, may we be the people of God out in the world this week. Amen.